namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa bhutan dhammang sankhang namasami So each, each lunar quarter we have these days of uh, gathering till in this monastery till midnight, sitting together and, and, and developing uh, the, the capacity to do longer stretches of practice, which hopefully that we then carry back to our living spaces, so the capacity to do longer stretches of sitting and walking, sitting and walking, or whatever formal practices you do. This is very much the forest tradition to try to, if, if time permits, two, three, four hours um, in an afternoon to try to get times where you, you become very competent at that, where you actually like to do those long stretches. You like to go to the meditation path and, and do the postures which you find most, most calming and, and usable. And the, um, this evening, or this so we try to practice to 12 o'clock. If you have the energy, please try to do so. It's a, it's a glorious night. It's a perfect temperature, half moon. Really um, ideal conditions for practice. Uh, the eight precepts is the, um, as you know, the, the standard for the monastery that um, a lot of our bhikkhu vinay is built upon. Um, Nonviolence, not killing. So the uh, protection of life especially life which is a nuisance, like ticks and mosquitoes and deer flies and uh, mice and those kinds of things. We try to, obviously we try to deal with them, but try to do, deal with them in a way where we try to get them off the property if possible. Um, so the impulse to just destroy that which is a nuisance, we begin to check that, look at that, and not just be impulsively violent. doesn't sound like much violence towards a deer fly. But it still is an impulse of getting rid of that which you don't like. And we're trying to pause and observe that impulse and not go there. It doesn't mean that you actually like these critters. I mean, that would not be natural because biologically they are attacking us. And so it doesn't feel very nice to be attacked. But the impulse to kill, we can look at that, we can pause, and we become more mindful of that. Um, Taking that which is not given, so in a monastery... The, um, the, the, the issues would be really around the kitchen. And so those people who are assigned kitchen duties have the responsibility to put out food, uh, to prepare the food according to our standards and the two times that we have it and then the, the allowances at tea time. So for it would not be correct to go to the kitchen and just take something when one wanted to. So if you wanted a piece of cheese... Uh, at 12 in the evening, it might be allowed in this morning to have cheese, but that would not be appropriate. He would only take it when it was put out by the people who were responsible uh, for putting out the tea and, and things. So if uh, one doesn't like, it's very tempting to look at the fridge as well. It's, you know, it's like fridge at home, it's okay. No one minds, and maybe you even bought the food. <laughs> um, they, oh, I bought some cheese, I might as well have some. But that would not be in the spirit of uh, not taking that which is not given. So it's not just simply some kind of thieving impulse, but it's just that, well, I want this, I'll take it. Looking at that, looking at that and pausing again. Oh, it's not time to take this. And it's, it's really not mine to take. And 
communal resources are, are governed by these principles of sharing and asking. Um, we try to ask if we need something in the Sangha. And, and those are the, they build a lot of trust, a, a lot of trust. Um, the celibacy precept is a precept on no sexual activity, so uh, not only does that include sexual intercourse, but also masturbation or any kind of uh, attempt to uh, have sexual impulses encouraged in the mind and body. Any, any movement towards that would be uh, to try to restrain, try to refrain from following those energies. Uh, so it's deeper than just uh, not, like celibacy can be not having any kind of sexual encounters, but this is even more profound than that. No, no masturbation and, uh, and no, obviously no, no looking at pornography and stimulating that, that part of our, our uh, psyche and that part of our, our uh, biology, but actually observing if sexual impulses come up through through memory or through interaction with someone, to try to see sexual impulses as, as dharma. They're not wrong, they're not to be repressed, but they can be known objectively as an energy which is natural but need not be followed. And this leads to a lot of peace if it's done well. If it's done, well. if it's done poorly, it can lead to repression, which doesn't work. But if, if, uh, if those sexual fantasies are entertained, they just keep the mind... Uh, you know, mind and body just very very restless all the time it's a very coarse kind of energy and yet it's very powerful sexual energy is very very powerful so you can't you can't just dismiss it but you can you can practice celibacy and still be aware of sexual energy and the idea that you won't be aware so you're not practicing uh, you're still aware of it right even though one is celibate and and uh, this is a powerful energy very powerful energy sometimes uh, I've noticed in other monas- in monasteries I have been where people will uh, be on retreat on their own and they'll start to feel depressed and they'll go to sexual fantasy to try to get out of the depression and then they get in trouble. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, but that's been the way that a person might have dealt with depression and boredom was to go to sexual fantasies and, and masturbation and, and such like and that, that um, doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so that... Those kind of habits sometimes you have to look at what what kind of habitual needs do the sexual energies bring up in the mind and how to refrain, restrain, be patient, be very patient. Any of you who've read the biography of Ajahn Chah, you've read that he was he had very powerful lustful energies that he had to deal with, and and apparently the biography that was being written for him they were going to not include that, but he said, no, you have to include that. And, and some of the descriptions are very graphic. And yet he dealt with it, and he was mindful. And um, so so that is one's karma. And these things, have, one has different different monks and different lay people have different propensities, partially depending on age and gender, but also just kind of karmically, how, how the mind has been conditioned through various factors. Um, right speech is... is uh, it's no, it doesn't say no speech, although sometimes we try to practice noble silence, but right speech is speech which is in concord, speech which is harmonious, speech which is not, uh, which is truth-telling, truth uh, and, and speech which brings some sense of dharma into, into discussion. So the opposite of, of, of uh, right speech would be speech which 
which which inflicted um, a mistrust. That's what kind of that's sometimes that happens to me. Someone will come to me with a story about someone else, and they'll start to create mistrust in my mind. And you can see you can you can see in that person it's just rumor, it's just suspicion, and then they try to dump it on me. That's very unkind to do to me. It's very unkind to do to that other person who is being talked about. Um, so that's wrong speech. And, and in, in Thai, they have they have a word for wrong speech. If someone is really really bad with speech, they call it bak pladak. And bak pladak is someone who has a mouth like rotten fish. So it smells like rotten fish. Remember that Ajampanya uh, Saras was talking to Long Paul, and and, and uh, you know, he describe the way of speech sometimes. So, um, speech which is uh, in concord, speech which is trustful, which creates trust in the community rather than distrust and suspicion. And, and, and as, 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 um, as practitioners, we, we are all, we're all limited by our own kilesas, our own defilements. We all, we're all working on this project of enlightenment. And, Sometimes we hold memories of each other because because someone did something two years ago. That doesn't mean that they are the same person. They're not the same person. And if we look in our own hearts, how we've grown, and all of us have grown in Dhamma, haven't we? We're much we're much better at speech than we were ten years ago. We're much better with our emotional impulsive behavior than we were ten years ago. So for someone to identify us as that ten years ago, and to talk about us in that way to others is an unkind thing. It's an unfair thing. Um, so be, be really, really uh, circumspect and, and cautious about speaking about other people. Why are you saying it? And is it, is it really helpful? Is it necessary? Look at the impulse behind it. What's the impulse of when we speak about other people? And it's very human, and, and it's not wrong, but if it's coming, from from this suspicion and 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 you know one's own kilesa say that that's a very um, socially a very harmful thing but also karmically in you know, in, in, in your mind it's not a very good good way to go um, drugs drugs which change consciousness obviously um, here there's no really I haven't smelled anyone smoking grass and no one looks like they're on LSD. So, and no one smells of alcohol, so I don't think that's ever been a problem on us there. If, if it was, I don't know. Um, but do do contemplate just trying to live with the ordinary consciousness, not heightened consciousness, change consciousness, rearrange consciousness, just whatever whatever you have, good enough, that's what you work with. We call a bojana, the, the precept on on uh, on food is 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 a, it's not a it's not a moral precept it's a renunciant precept it's to simplify things so the uh, eating at appropriate times here is the times that we have breakfast lunch and then we have the tea in the afternoon and that's the times we eat and other times we don't and that's a communal agreement and and uh, and we we as i said earlier we share the resources so if one feels hungry if that one doesn't feel like having tea at five o'clock when when it's laid out for the lay people, and one feels, well, I'd like some some cheese and tea at eight o'clock. Too bad. Wait till tomorrow. It's not that way. That you just take things when you want to take them, and that's good. It's okay to watch hunger. Nothing wrong with that, is it? It's good to watch hunger. Good, 
And so if we find that many of the, the monks are, are doing aditanas, um, practices of, of just having one meal a day. Um, and these are very good things, very good things to just look at our whole relationship to food. Um, but it's not, it's not a moral precept, so Vikala Bhojana can be developed in lay life. If you have a, a lay situation, it's really limiting the times that you eat. So someone who grazes all the time or, or goes to the fridge whenever they feel bored, they could put a discipline, say, well, I'm only going to eat three times a day. doesn't sound like much, but then one could watch that tendency of just, well, bored, have an apple. You know, I'm underweight, doesn't really matter, have a, have a, have a, have a yogurt or whatever. And, and then the mind's always just distracted with nibbling and grazing and, and, and uh, out into the world of sense. And the need for sense stimulation is one of the things that actually blocks the peace of the mind, blocks the realization of Nibbana. Um, entertainment, beautification and adornment. Uh, these, these, the, the monastery then, there's no uh, listening or playing of music, or if you happen to be on the, um, uh, on the computer, no going to uh, in entertainments or distractions on, on, uh, on the computer. So, so that whole realm of computer distraction is, is one to be looked at in terms of, of, uh, of that seventh precept because people can be thinking that they're not looking at entertainment but they're just in the screen all the time uh, always on on an iPhone or a television or a internet or something so the mind is actually maybe it doesn't look like I'm watching a, a Star Wars movie but actually the mind is always out always out stimulation 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 and that's never good for samadhi that's never very good for the mind but having said that, sometimes it's one's duty to, to work on the computer and then just we try to do that as skillfully as possible. The um, sleeping in high luxurious places is a rather strange formulation, but it basically means not just to be slovenly and spend any extra time we have uh, sleeping, to, to, to try to govern one's sleep skillfully and then to use any, any, any space you have to develop study and meditation. Um, now these these precepts are, are, are give us a common container that we that we function within and that we practice within and and one needs to kind of be reminded of these these things again and again and again they're, they're good reminders of the forms that, that we use here at the monastery. There are other forms we use forms of etiquette, forms of respect, forms of um, deference to authority in, in terms of who has responsibility in work situations, etc. And, and this, this communal life that we live um, is special because these communities don't, you don't find many communities like this in, the, in, the, in North America. Uh, you have the word community, so you could say the Vipassana community, you could say that, or the um, yeah, the aeronautical engineer community or something like that. But those are very, that's a very loose term of the word, but actually a, li a living community, these are rare things. And so within that we, we both support each other, but we also rub up against each other. We have uh, a common sense of um, respect for each other, but also there are things that agitate and irritate and irk us. And 
and that's part of the work of living together and the common forms that we agree upon helps that work very much if we didn't have these common forms if we just did what we want to do there would be no trust uh, there would be no harmony and we'd, we'd split up fairly quickly so these forms are more than just moral forms they're, 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 the, they're the kind of the, the foundation of good Sangha life good, you know, good Sangha life our our uh, our duty also is, is to, to live socially in this particular way, but also to develop uh, meditation practice and uh, to be diligent in that, uh, to, 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 to make, not just, say, in the monastery, not just doing the, the practices that we have uh, morning and evening, but try to do extra time, extra time of formal meditation practice, and to try to uh, cultivate the the, the, the capacity to, to first and foremost um, abide, abide in, uh, in the present moment with unbiased attention. And this is, this is not as easy as it sounds. Unbiased attention is the, is the capacity to really know this moment, to be clear that this moment is, is, is manifesting in this, just this, this, this way, exactly this way. Without the bias of our attention, first of all, being just lost in a cloud of dullness or, a, or, a, or a, an endlessly restless, agitated mind. Uh, so in trying to develop uh, a, a, clear, a clear presence, we, 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 we use skillful means, and, and we, I like, as you know, I like the imagery of craft. And if you think about, say, one uh, Samanera Kemos now, sewing his uh, sangati, which is a, a, a complicated, it's this robe that I have on my shoulder, it's a double robe and all the, the stitches are hidden inside the two layers. So it's a, it's a complex garment to, to sew and, and uh, the monks, Slake uh, Mamino Chunda were helping, helping Samanera Kema sew the sangati. Now, he didn't start with the sangati, in learning to sew, he started with maybe a bathing cloth, just learning how to hem the top and bottom of a, of a piece of, uh, just the ends of a cloth. Or he, he learned how to sew a, a sitting cloth, very simple, simple straight lines. But the, the learning how to use the machine on something simple like hemming a, a bathing cloth uh, and, and stitching up a, a, a sitting cloth is very simple. That basic lesson is the same lesson he uses when he uh, encounters something more complex with thicker cloth, with uh, more complicated cutting, uh, with more complicated geometry to put together several layers, hidden hidden stitching, and so on. But he began he began with the very same simple how do you use this mean machine to sew a straight line, have the stitching evenly spaced, have it knotted top and bottom, and have it spaced equal distance from the hemline, right? So in the same way, when in, in cultivating meditation, we we begin by by we begin by um, taking a, a very simple uh, object of, of attention and learning the basic stitching technique, the basic technique or way of meditation by being with something very simple and uncomplicated, and so what we're trying to do is we're first and foremost we're trying to practice upamada. We're trying to practice this unbiased, attentive wakefulness to the way things are. And 
so it's both a kind of clarity, but it's also not biased. It's not biased, and 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 we do that by taking something neutral. So if you take the breath, or even more simply, just the sound of the fan, just uh, any sound or any bodily sensation, and you hold your attention on that with clarity and without the bias of trying to get something or trying to get rid of something, without that bias. That's a very simple lesson. It's a very, very simple lesson. It's just the same as a lesson of first stitching up a hem on a piece of cloth. So you take sound or you take a, a bodily sensation, like just the warmth in your hands, and you, and you learn how to sustain attention, clarity, with that object. With that object. So you have to understand what, what we mean by clarity. So what do we mean by clarity? It's simply when you know what's going on. And that doesn't sound like much, but quite often we don't really know where we're going on. We're, we're uh, caught up in our thinking and organizing and complaining and worrying, and we're not really present to the to that emotion because our our attention is caught up with thinking. So now we're we're learning how not just to uh, be caught up in the thinking mind. We're taking a sense object, a very ordinary object, a, and just the dharma of that sound, bodily feeling, and sustaining this unbiased attention. And lo and behold, when we try to do that, whether it's the breath, or it's the posture, or the sensations in the body. Or, or uh, animita, or whatever it might be, lo and behold, what we behold is what happens. We fall asleep. And we start to plan. Uh, we start to fidget, and so on. So, so the first step, really, is how can I get into the present moment and, and abandon thinking? Just that is, is a huge step. Abandon thinking and really, really feel and know and, and realize this present moment is this way. Present moment awareness. And that instruction is the same instruction you have to, you know, on a sewing machine. If you're not with the sewing machine uh, and you start thinking about um, something you're going to do later on, boop, the thing goes off, doesn't it? It just goes off, off track. And you can unpick it, and real hassle and so on. So the simple task of being present to the movement of the machine uh, is, is, is similar to the simple task of being present to this moment. Now there isn't any any real physical thing which challenges us to pull us into the present moment. That's, that's a bit more difficult. With a machine, you got you got this activity which needs to be done, and you know if you don't do it, it's going to be a hassle. So it demands your attention much more. If the situation is dangerous, there's ice in the road or, or whatever, that's even more easy, actually, to pay attention. But when you just sit here, and you are just with a very ordinary, very easy just to fall asleep, very easy, very easy just to start uh, falling asleep. And that's a, that's a common, common uh, hindrance in meditation. And, and uh, uh, it's a very dangerous one, actually, because you find like there's a difference between just being sleepy and, and getting into the, the terrible habit of just closing your eyes and thinking. Thinking. This happens very commonly. It's, you know, like, you li- like we listen to the day, so now we close our eyes. We meditate, we close our eyes, and that closing of the eyes, very often, if it's not skillful, just allows the mind to go thinking. That's why Zen, they keep the eyes open. And you can keep your eyes open and think too. Um, but that, that, that inability to sustain brightness and clarity and presence of mind, that, that's part of the, the basic method. So you set up the basic method with the object, 
And then you, you observe, why, why, why can't this uh, attentiveness be sustained? What, what is it? Which hindrance is it? What kind of hindrance is it? And you begin to use things like labeling, dullness, restlessness, uh, worry, uh, f- uh, lustful fantasies. Uh, where does the mind go? And you try to, you try to awaken to that now. So the awakening, the object of awareness, then awakens you to that which prevents you from being aware, right? That which prevents you from being aware. Whereas if you didn't have an object of awareness, an object of meditation, it's, it's like, like, like just walking around the monastery. You can walk around the monastery and walk to the lake and be thinking all the time. But if you do walking meditation, you choose beginning end of the path, you have things to stop you. You know, you get to the end of the path, oh, wait a minute, I'm just planning again, or, oh, wait a minute, I'm just, you know, fantasizing, or I'm resenting something. The end of the path helps you. It marks, it marks, some, it, 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 it awakens you. And we need to really break up the thinking mind because it's so insidious and so, um, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it, but our, as long as our attention is preoccupied with it, we have no mental space or emotional space or, conscious space for the realization of anything more profound insight or the deeper possibilities of peace. So, so the, the um, teachings around the hindrances are serious teachings, the serious teachings that, that you really have to figure out what, what, what hinders you from knowing this person moment for five minutes. What is it? That's not analytical. It's, it's good observation. It's good, clear observation. Ah, the mind is really... Um, uh, worried about my health, or um, I'm, my mind is creating another project, or I'm uh, really thinking about uh, a woman I saw yesterday, or whatever it is. Uh, where's the mind going? Then the task is how do you abandon that? How do you abandon the hindrances? What, are the, what is the methodology for not falling asleep? What is the methodology for not fantasizing? What is the methodology for not worrying? What is it? How do you do it? And that's the craft. That's the craft you have to figure out. And, and even if the things which prevent present moment awareness aren't listed in the text exactly as we experience them, still, you experience them. You still have them, don't you? So if you take that, the ground practice of present moment awareness, what is it like now? Unbiased attention, clear attention, sound is sound, body is body, clear attention, bright, clear, knowing the way things are. You take that as the standard. What throws you off? When does the mind become biased? When does it skirt away into whatever condition it wants to? And then observe and understand, figure out how not to do that, because then you'll have longer clarity of mind. This is Dhammavijaya. This is investigating your mind, not, and not through any kind of doctrine, right? Just cause and effect, cause and effect. Where does your thinking mind going? What are the kinds of patterns the thinking mind picks up? Can you notice the underlying uh, bodily tension which thought creates? I found an interesting listening to my own reading of Hajan Panyawado's um, uh, uh, very good book here and how he was mentioning that um, his, his recollection was to, to, to place attention on the solar plexus and, and the chest region and that to notice that thought is very much in the brain. I find that too. And I, there are a few references to that, so I was happy to see that. If, you, if you're really attentive to thought, you'll see it's brain pressure. It's brain pressure. And if you learn how to bring your attention away from brain pressure into some other part of the body, 
So when he was saying the solar plexus, the tension there in the heart, you begin to be able to um, go beyond the thinking mind, not by thinking. Quite often we think that we think that we can think our ways out of thinking. So we're very analytical beings in the West. We just analyze. Why am I thinking so much? Or why do I have a problem? And and the mind just feeds, feeds, feeds on thought. There's nothing wrong with thought. Thought is natural. But the addiction to thinking is is like any addiction. It's endless. So good body awareness. Then can you pay attention to the body with un, un, in an unbiased way? Uh, and 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 training, training in good body awareness, a posture, walking. Uh, eating, uh, craft, uh, sitting posture, walking, all of that. All those are, are really important kind of things to learn how to be mindful in because the, the body doesn't lie. It is as it is. And it's a very clear indication of this present moment, be it painful or pleasant. Whereas thought is just spinning uh, all kinds of nonsense out and keeps us fascinated in these endless cycles of of whatever fascination we happen to be caught up into. And it is endless, isn't it? That's samsara. Whereas the body the body is 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 is, is something about the present moment. The body's very honest in that way, if, if you could use that word. But even even once the um the thinking mind has been has been um um cooled to some extent, the mind can still have a strong bias and and it can have a bias towards attainment. Or it can have a bias towards um, not not having the present situation because it's not attainment. So through our readings, through the suggestions teachers make to us, through our own experiences, through memory and so on, we can enter into the present moment even when the mind has a certain amount of no thought in it, a certain amount of science. We can have a very strong bias to try to get something. And that leaning forward and trying to attain is still bhava tanha. And then bhava, of course, feeds vibhava, not trying to get rid of. So unbiased attention then in, involves this very, very um, clear balancing and knowing. Oh, this is you know, the language I like to use, non-resistance and non-anticipation. You're figuring out that balance for yourself. What does that mean? What is, what is, a, what is a mind without tanha? So kama tanha, we're not fascinated by the breath. You know, it's not like watching um, pornography or something like that, or, or eating delicious food. So our attention is on the sense realm, but it's no longer from, from kama tanha, right? And then, and then bhava and vibhava, that movement towards getting, and vibhava then rejecting something. And, and, and figuring out bhava and vibhava, moment by moment, moment by moment, is very important. So that, so that our attention is truly unbiased. And then we need to train in that for long, long periods of time. Uh, very much, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, training that. That's a very, very simple training. It's not complicated, but our minds are very complicated. Our karma is very complicated. So we do need tremendous perseverance and determination. This practice doesn't come without a lot of work, a lot of determination. Sure, sir, there are some adepts like who was it? Daba the Melian, was it? Shaved his head at the age of seven, got enlightened or something. Uh, but I haven't seen one like that yet myself. Most people have to work real hard. And it's good work. It's good work. It takes determination. Mpacha, he had to work hard. Um, so, uh, and working hard, what does that mean? Working hard doesn't mean getting rid of stuff. It means awakening to stuff. 
it, it's it's understanding what this unbiased attention is, this this kind of clarity, awakeness, presence, recognizing that, and then learning to sustain that moment by moment by moment, and remembering it again and again and again. So the remembering process, the recognition process, is important because if you if you recognize that this moment now is free from bhava, free from vibhava, it's not caught up with karma, it's not trying to get rid of or become, that's the moment. Sometimes that moment happens at the end of a bell. You know, you finally wake up, uh, you know, being sleepy or something, the bell rings and you know, and right there, that's it. The mind is awake and clear. Recognize that. Say, that's it. This is the moment of clarity. Expand that to two moments. So recognition of clarity is kind of recognition of the end of, of self-becoming, the end of me trying to do something. It's kind of clarity. And then... The, the determination, the intention then, is to, tr- to train in that clarity. This isn't a, 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 a project based on ego. Ego is trying to become something else, not trying to become anything else. So clarity, we begin with something simple, like with the sewing of the cloth, the simple hemming of a piece of cloth, the, the simplicity of sewing a, um, a bathing cloth. But then... The analogy kind of goes forth into the, the, the complexities of our own uh, consciousness, our own emotions. So we begin by listening to sound and really recognizing sound is this way. And feeling that moment of non-becoming, non-resistance, pure receptivity, just knowing it, right? Okay, that's it. That's the practice. That's bhavana. Got to keep doing that. Pick up an object, breath, whatever. But then apply that to... Uh, Someone who's getting up your nose, and you're having a discussion, and they're just starting to irritate you. Unbiased attention. Unbiased attention to the very feeling of irritation. Ah, irritation feels this way, right? Unbiased attention towards uh, boredom. Unbiased attention towards complaining about something, about the schedule, the food, the weather, you know, whatever it is. These are more difficult things. It's like sewing a sangati. But it's still just a sankara. It's just some kind of condition that's come up because of karmic things. There's some baggage one has to be aware of. But the unbiased attention is the same. So it's a more complicated project. It's a more complicated piece of sewing. But if you've taken that first lesson, if you've understood that first lesson, how do you use a sewing machine to, to sew a straight line? How do you listen to sound without craving, without desire? How do you do that? What is that? What does that feel like? You recognize it, know that. Then that same recognition, that same bhavana, that same practice begins to click in the more complicated situations, the more uh, socially complicated, the more emotionally fraught, the more karmically sticky kind of stuff that we have. You begin to be with that, with unbiased attention. And that's when you you really have a lot of... um, Gratitude to the practice, because even that, even that difficult stuff that, that's always confusing me, even that, well, I was able to be with that, as if to be aware of that, as just a condition, as just a sankara. And it's tremendous sense of relief there, uh, release and relief, that yeah, even this, even this is okay, even that's okay. And that's obviously more difficult. So the easier lessons, we need to do those. We need to have times of simplicity, and, and uh, non-complexity, but use them well. Don't just use simplicity and non-complexity just to, 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 to think a lot. And that's what happens sometimes when there's no challenge. You just let the mind just wander and drift. And don't, 
It's a very valuable time, very valuable time when it's when it's simple and uncomplicated, and, and the sense experience is simple. Use that to 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 actually deepen that capacity to be awake without desire, to be awake without craving, without resistance, without becoming, without anticipation, and then that that is a foundation for for the the hard work we do sometimes with uh, the more difficult karmas that we experience, sickness or confusion or lack of inspiration uh, or, or disharmony and, and all these different things we face as human beings because they're all they're all the same pattern arising and ceasing and, and it's just like a sewing machine you're just sewing another piece of cloth it's thicker it's a different kind of material polyester is very difficult to sew uh, leather is hard to sew and difficult but sewing's the same same kind of practice alright I'll leave that for your reflection <coughs> Andamiyantamakatasatukarangatamase. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat>